Steve Rode and Damon Day are coming at you fast, getting you out of debt with their true romance. Steve's the ying to Damon's yang, and they are here to save the day. A couple debt superheroes, Steve and Damon, coming your way. All right, you're back with another episode of Debt Free Dudes with Damon Day, D-A-M-O-N-D-A-Y.com, and myself, Steve Rode, the Get Out of Debt guy at getoutofdebt.org. Damon, this time we're talking about benefits and specifically, you know, we keep calling them, people of my generation keep calling them food stamps, but they're now called SNAP, uh, which are the benefits people use to purchase food supplemental nutrition assistance program. I, I don't know. I like food stamps better, but what the hell you had a situation recently with somebody and it brought up a great example of this whole problem of trying to get off welfare and get to work. What was the situation? Yeah, I did. It was a uh, potential client that had called me for help uh, last week. Really nice lady. And we were talking about her overall situation and she's got a business that she's starting right now and she's a hustler, you know, you can just tell she's a hustler and, you know, mm-hmm. she's been on some form of public assistance one way or another off and on for the previous decade. I mean, I didn't get all the details, but one of the things that really stuck with me about that conversation is how badly she wanted to get herself off of relying on any form of public assistance. But the the, the hurdles and the barriers that she faced while she was in that transitionary period. And the biggest one that she brought up was, and I don't even remember which specific benefit it was, but that she kept saying, but once I make more than $600 from the business in one month, this specific benefit goes away and then it sets me back. And she's like, that's not a big deal, except my revenue is not consistent. I could make $700 one month and make zero the next month. And now that benefit is gone. So it puts my family in a spot that we're stuck because if I make $600, I lose the benefit. And then the next month I don't make at least that much. Now we're going backwards and we don't have enough money to eat or whatever it's going to be. You know, this is not a new problem either. I remember many years ago when I first started helping people with debt problems, there was a book that came out. I had to go look it up. And uh, the book was called From Welfare to Work. It was written in 1989. And uh, there's this one quote from the book that I think is so amazing. It says, while this book was being written, the importance of this knowledge base came into sharper focus. The 1988 legislation offers $1 billion a year in new federal money for welfare to work programs but only if they put up matching state resources. States will be making these funding decisions in unusually harsh financial conditions, with many facing budget deficits and powerful competing claims on scarce funds. I mean, Damon, that was what, four years ago? Yeah, 40. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. No. And this whole idea of people on welfare are just lazy jerks that don't want to do anything uh, is a perception, but it's not necessarily reality. The woman that you talk to is a great example of people I have talked to over all these many decades that are trapped in either staying on benefits, lying, I guess, or 
uh, giving up benefits and trying to make that leap. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, in, in true to form, you know, you took the time to do a whole bunch of research and you've known this stuff for years. But see, the way the way Steve and I work is I'll perceive an injustice somewhere. Right. And I'll get all pissed off and hot and bothered about it. And then I'll call my my logical, even feel <laughs> friend, Steve, and and he'll just be doing something else. Why I, you know, throw up into the phone about the injustice of whatever this thing is and how it needs to be fixed and this, that and the other thing. And then about 30 minutes later, he'll probably call me back and say, oh, hey, I've done all this research. I've got all these, you know, this information about it. And let's talk about it. So that's essentially how we came up with this podcast is I got off that call with that client and got all hot and bothered and pissed off. And then Steve says, oh, look, here's all this information about it. But it comes down to, for me anyway, these these programs should not be designed to kind of trap people on them. They should be designed to help people help themselves to get off of it. And I think, you know, because, you know, I come a little bit more from the right side of things than than you do sometimes. And, you know, oh, absolutely. People on my side always say, like you said, oh, they're lazy. They're just abusing the system. They're. Um, you know, it's fraud and all this stuff, but when you really start to dig into it, which I have not, but you have <laughs> mm-hmm. and look yeah. at it, it's there, there is this transitionary period where a lot of people would rather be self-sufficient, but the rules of a lot of these programs are very tricky to navigate. And you could really put your family in a bad situation by trying to be optimistic and say, okay, I'm going to do it this month. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this job or I'm going to start this business. I'm going to generate this revenue and we're going to have this nice linear upward trajectory and we're going to make it. And then all of a sudden something happens and you fall back down. And now it takes a month or two to get that money from that program again. But in the meantime, you can't feed your kids. You know, that's a real fear. So, Damon, you talk about you're the uh, the throw up in the microphone friend. Is that what is that what you said? Yeah, that's what I do. I just like look at okay, all these problems, uh, Steve. Fix these problems. <laughs> and I refer to you as my well actually friend because oftentimes my response is well actually. <laughs> um, and it's funny how all these things tie together. I'm going to say something that is not uh, a moral statement at all, but in this age right now of how we want to ban all abortions. I get it. People are passionate about it. I understand that. Uh, It's going to end up with more single parents. And one of the biggest problems of getting off benefits is how do you afford childcare when you leave welfare and you go to work? This This is one of the fundamental problems. And what do you see? I mean, Damon, you've certainly seen something about this. I have no idea. I'm not going to touch that topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, child, daycare is expensive. Well, daycare, yeah, I'll touch daycare. But, well, yeah, it, it it absolutely is. And, you know, I mean, they, they and again, I don't know anything about this, but I'm assuming and I, I'm pretty sure they do have uh, assistance and programs for daycare. But the same thing, once you make over a certain amount of money, you lose that assistance for daycare. And I don't know the specific numbers. But I do know with this uh, potential client I was talking to in particular, that was one of the issues where they would get daycare uh, covered, but her she mentioned her daycare was about $1,200 a month. And so what she right. makes over a certain threshold, if that benefit goes away, now all of a sudden you have to make an additional $1,200 to be able to cover that benefit to keep going. So it's almost like one step forward, two steps back. So that is the part of these programs that really needs to be taken a look at. And, you know, I'm I'm not the guy that's going to be able to figure out how to do it. But rather than just 
ripping the whole thing away. Maybe it should be phased out over time and, and, you know, with certain amounts, not just all of it or none of it or something like that. Maybe they can do a six month review if somebody's starting a business or something like that. Okay. You know, here, these benefits are going to continue. Let's meet back in six months and let's see how the business is doing. What, where are the revenues at now? Are they at a point where they can, you know, afford to uh, phase these benefits out and still go forward or not, rather than just every 30 days, you hit this magic number and this all goes away. Yeah. And as I remember, you mentioned that uh, that person you were talking to said that when they go back and reapply, it takes two, three months or more before they can resume their benefits. Yeah. And even if even if they even if they make it retroactive and they say, oh, well, you know, by the time we'll, we'll pay out, we'll pay out for two months ago because you were qualified. That doesn't help them in, you know, in today when they have to put food on the table today. They can't say, yeah, I'm going to get this money, but it's going to be two months down the road. You know, people that are on, you know, like you said, the, the food stamps or the EBT or whatever, they typically don't have a few thousand dollars in the bank account to cover that time. So it's a it's a huge problem if you're worried about like, oh, my gosh, I, I've got this business. It's really starting to go. Wow, I made six hundred dollars, which in the grand scheme of things is not a huge amount of money. But that's what the threshold is on some of these programs. And then, like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, does she does she need to be should she be honest about it? You know, I mean, she's choosing between, you know, well, this could put my family in jeopardy. Is it better to ask for forgiveness rather than, you know, permission? Because if I, you know, it's my own business and I don't report that I made $600, that's wrong. We shouldn't promote that. But if this is potentially life and death or, you know, her kid's not going to be able to eat. And then maybe three or four months later, now she's making plenty of money. And then she tells him, oh, by the way, I made a little bit more. And then she has to pay a penalty or whatever. It's easier to pay a penalty when you have the money to pay it than it is just not to have the money at all. So I'm not advocating for that, obviously, but it, it's a it's a moral dilemma that these programs put people in to have to make these kind of decisions, even if they want to do the right thing. So 10 years ago, I wrote my first piece on benefit fraud. And what I came up with at that point was there really wasn't that much benefit fraud. People actually convicted or found guilty of fraudulently claiming benefits. So when we started talking about this, I went back and uh, look for updated information. And I think these facts are fascinating because recent data has shown that I'm not even going to ask you, Damon, when you think of benefit fraud, what is the typical demographic that you believe people think about? Because here's what the actual facts are. When it comes to benefit fraud, 59% of government benefit fraud offenders were men. 40% were white, 32% were Hispanic, 22% were black, and 5% were other races. The average age of somebody found committing benefit fraud is 46. 73% of them are U.S. citizens, not people with, you know, green cards or whatever, U.S. citizens. 70% had little to no prior criminal history, and uh, the top five districts for benefit fraud offenders are Massachusetts, Ohio, Nebraska, California, and Florida. Uh, I think those statistics would be a surprise to many people thinking that the number one offender of benefit fraud is white men, American citizens. 
And and like you said, when you looked at the numbers, it's overwhelmingly not people committing fraud. It's people that are using that money because they need it. And let me, let me ask you this, what you, what you think on this. Why do you think, because I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, you know, it's like you said, it's been 40 years since that, that book that you read was, was written and the, and the problems are, you know, here today. And even in my opinion, probably worse today. Mm-hmm. Why do you think politicians from both sides are not motivated to fix this? Because when I look at this, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard or that difficult of an idea to get behind where you're saying, hey, look, we, we know people fall in hard times. Stuff happens. We want to be able to help. And I'm all for that, too. And it's like, what can we do, though, so these programs don't encourage people to stay on them? What can we do to encourage people to get a leg up in society, use these programs when they they do fall on hard times, but you know, let's promote getting off of these programs and let's encourage them to do that. Like things like I've heard about over the years where, oh, if you go get a job, you lose this. Or if or if you go yeah. try to get, get some training and get some further education, you can't get this specific benefit because you're going to school or whatever it is. To me, that's the opposite of what it should be. It should actually be, hey, if you want to go to school or if you want to go to get this vocational training or whatever it is, you should actually get an extra benefit, in my opinion, for (laughs) for doing that, not a penalty. Uh, The deck is stacked against people who have had some sort of disadvantage uh, one way or another. For example, if you live in a, a low income area. And there are all sorts of online classes and courses and certificate programs that you can take. However, uh, there is no real good subsidy for good internet in low-income areas. (laughs) So the, the answer to your question, Damon, is I believe that as a society, we have cast uh, the person who takes, who is perceived to take advantage of benefits as some lying, scheming, sack of crap, son of a bitch, uh, who's just lazy and taking advantage of the system. And the reality is that is not true. When you, when you think about people living on benefits, I'm going to stay on welfare. I'm not going to use my, I don't want my tax money just paying for some lazy ass person just to live on welfare. Have you actually tried to live on a welfare benefit? (laughs) You you, you can't feed anybody on uh, SNAP or food stamps or EBT. It is, it's a chore. It's not a choice. It is a chore. Yeah. But, but it goes back to my question then, why are we not all in universal agreement on these programs need to be overhauled to incentivize people and, and help people that are, you know, the ones that are trying to get off of these programs rather than throw up roadblocks. Cause that's what a lot of these programs do is they make it very difficult to make that transition. Yeah. People on benefits, whether it's Medicaid, uh, you, you know, food stamps, whatever it is are perceived to be slackers and people constantly all the time say, I don't want my money. Those people need to go get a job. And that's just easy to say, but it's really hard to do. Now, uh, I am old enough that I remember when LBJ came into office uh, because my father worked for the Peace Corps at the time, and there was a big push for eliminating poverty in America. Uh, we don't do that anymore. 
Uh, and it could be the pressure from state budgets or federal budgets or demonizing people who need a hand up. But ultimately, it costs us more as a society to keep people on welfare and benefits than it does to give people a meaningful chance out of this. Well, th- that's my point. So why are the politicians not fixing these programs? What, what is motivating them to, to not touch it? You think that, that, that the perception of it will get them voted, voted out? Is that what you're absolutely. saying? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> like, you don't think they'll be able to sell it as, hey, this will ultimately save us, save the taxpayers money by being able to explain that, hey, these incentives, putting this extra money into this is going to ultimately help people get off of these programs, which overall will save us money. You don't think they'd be able to They're, sell it. I mean, they can sell some bullshit. Oh, no, no. They got to yeah, yeah. be able to sell it. They can sell whatever they no. want. That's their professional sellers. A couple few podcasts ago where I mentioned a quote from somebody who said that uh, student loan forgiveness was stupid because, I'm going to paraphrase it, because uh, hardworking blue-collar truck drivers were going to lose tax money paying for liberal educated gender study students. Uh, And that's the same sort of broad brush incendiary statement that is made about uh, people uh, on welfare, people on benefits. Yeah. The, the knee jerk reaction is people on benefits are somehow real losers and just trying to take advantage of the system. Even during the 2008 housing crash, when people were losing everything, the number of people on going to the food pantries and the demand for food assistance were exceedingly high and by people who had previous well-paying jobs. When you There's a, a, a food bank near me, and on the days when it's open, if you drive by, it looks like a typical cross-section of America. It doesn't look like people taking advantage of the system. Well, I mean, the way to test that theory about whether or not, you know, people are just taking advantage of the system is, again, to incentivize people to get off of the programs, not penalize them, and then see how many people, you know, utilize those advantages and get themselves off by going to get a job or like, like, here's an example, too. It's like people say, oh, just go get a job. Okay, well. What, what's the job going to be? Let's say they're they're very they're low skilled and they go typical job and they're able these days, you know, 15 bucks an hour or whatever that is. Well, the problem right. is $15 an hour is nothing. The You know, with the inflation the way it is and even before inflation, I mean, $15 an hour is not enough to raise a family. Let's just say, you know, and people say, well, right. the minimum wage is never designed for that. And I, and I get that. But you got to do what you got to do. But if you go get a job, let's say you have two kids. And you're desperate, you're trying to do whatever you can. You go get a job and you accept, okay, 15 bucks an hour. And you've got rent payment and food and all the things that go along with life. And at the same time, you get this $15 an hour job. Now you have, let's say, what would equal, I, I don't even know the numbers, but let's say, you know, $10 an hour of benefits go away, right? Or whatever yeah, it would yeah. be. Now all of a sudden you're working full time and you're really only netting $5 an hour. But then if you have two kids, they're like you said, now there's daycare and there's all this stuff. So it gets to a point where it's like I could literally stay home and essentially make the same than I could if I got a job. That's what I'm talking about, like a penalty for going to get a job. Whereas what would happen if they could still continue to get the benefits for a certain time or at least a, a pro rata portion of those benefits for a certain amount of time once they got the job? So they had 
you know, a few months or six months or what they had some time to actually get ahead, get a little bit mm-hmm. of money in an emergency fund, have programs designed to incentivize that so they don't immediately lose what the income that they have as soon as they start this job, right? And they could they could make those programs so like hey and people say well they shouldn't get benefits while they have a job for six months well you know what if they don't get that job they're going to have those benefits for years so what's better <laughs> you know well and you you left out one thing another hurdle from this whole welfare to work bridge is that you know if fuel is getting more expensive if you want to try to get to a job where you have to a lot of people have to take public transportation. And here in the United States, public transportation generally just sucks or isn't available. And now you're talking about people that need to take two or three buses to get to work, you know, and leaving early, getting home late. Now they got latchkey kids. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, as part of the generation after LBJ and trying to eradicate poverty in America, we started Head Start to give uh, children who were disadvantaged an opportunity to learn more uh, and have access to meals and everything else. And it seems like that gets demonized every election cycle as well. Easy answers are never the real answer to a difficult problem. And this is a multi-layered problem. Again, a lot of people, uh, look, I'm just going to say it. A lot of people uh, believe that uh, the perception of the welfare queen, which is uh, a black woman sitting on her ass not doing anything is what welfare fraud is. And the statistics are the exact opposite. Yet we we never talk about that. Well, you were saying the other day that um, a, a lot of the fraud comes from employers, not necessarily. Yeah, retailers. Yeah, retailers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was like, and that's the first time I ever even heard that concept. I'm like, what you talking about, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, where retailers are forcing people to con- convert their EBT money uh, into cash that goes into the retailer's par- pocket instead of getting actual food benefits or skimming some off the top. Retailer fraud is much bigger of an issue uh, than it is somebody individually taking advantage of the system. But even above that, which is more surprising, is the amount of financial loss from SNAP or food stamps doesn't occur from either of those. It occurs from states inefficiently inefficiently administering the program, making either overpayments or underpayments. Now, states are more likely to make underpayments of benefits, which hurts people even more, but uh, the most considerable payment error rate was in Rhode Island, where they had the, the most number of overpayment or underpayments, and the lowest was Ohio. Maine, people in Maine are more likely to have their SNAP payments shorted than in any other state. So if you took all the waste and fraud out of the state system, there would be more money available for people to actually stay on the program a little bit longer and have a chance to succeed. Now, moving from welfare to work, big hurdles, right? Because as you said, you've got daycare, you got transportation, you have fuel, you have food, you have all this other stuff. You said that government programs are notoriously inefficient and wasteful, right? Yes, (laughs) they are. Yeah. So, um, but I think, you know, it's such a huge problem. You start with baby steps, right? And the first thing that I would look at is say, what can we do to at least not penalize people that are 
trying to get ahead for themselves and their families. To me, that should be an easy place to start, not on the front end of these programs, on the back end. When are we going to take these programs away? Let's take a look at that and let's look at these arbitrary rules that have been put in place on when you lose these programs and let's see if we could tweak them a little bit. That's all. It does, does, it's not a big thing. Let's just tweak them a little bit to incentivize people to give themselves a leg up and, and, and reach for something bigger, right? And not penalize them for even daring to consider it. Well, the answer, the logical answer, I, I always hate applying logic in government, uh, but the logical answer would be to take the equivalent of the benefits they're receiving uh, and apply them to the base amount that they get cut off so that when their benefits, so it's a phase out, right? And when the benefits do get cut off, they are left in the same position that they can move on from. Yeah, but it, and it's got to phase out, but it's got to be, it can't be like a dollar for dollar. Cause like you said, as you apply yourself at, in a business or at a job, other expenses come up that you didn't have if you just stayed home, yeah. right? So you can't just say, oh, I made 600, so I'm going to take 600 away. Well, yeah, but I made 600 because I was out of the house working on this business 50 hours a week and not, you know, if I can't, if I lose that same amount of money, I might as well just stay home and I can hang out with my kids myself. Because as a parent, if you have the option to make $1,000 hanging out with your kids or make $1,000 and not even see your kids, why not make $1,000 hanging out with your kids and not have them well, being raised by some stranger? You know what I mean? There you go. There you go. That is a perfect example of what is the right answer for people? Is it better to have somebody else raise your child or is it better for you to stay home and raise your child? I, I know what my answer would be, but I can see what the next election cycle would be if this was an issue. On the progressive side, you would have people are entitled to have the welfare to work uh, transition and we'll give them these benefits, et cetera. On the other side, it could be uh, you for all the blue collar <laughs> truck drivers that are out there. If you don't vote for us, then your money, your tax dollars are going to go for people sitting at home on their asses, just taking advantage of the system. And well, that's just politicians doing what politicians do, dividing and conquering. That's why I'm not enthusiastic. There's going to be much of an answer, but well, it's been it's been 40 years, so I'm sure I'm sure the next election cycle is going to bring big changes. <laughs> well, that book uh, from Welfare to Work uh, is based on studies that began in 1908. In a perfect world, we would have programs in prisons that actually rehabilitated people and gave them, you know, opportunities. We'd have programs that. Uh, taught people skills and trades and took them from welfare to work and made them more productive members of society. But as long as some people out there perceive that someone else is taking advantage of them, uh, it's not going to happen. So it'll never happen, Damon. That's my answer. Yeah, it'll never happen. That's that's awesome. <laughs> so so this, this was a wasted podcast. We just both <laughs> railed about uh, problems with benefits and it's not going to change anything. I would bet you right now that long after I'm gone, one day you will remember back and have a, f a fleeting memory of this podcast and you will say, yeah, damn, we were right. It never changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much how, how it's so. Do we have any takeaways for people that are you know on benefits right now and just have this intense desire? not to be on them and not to just have to 
rely on the government programs and be self-sufficient for themselves and their family? I mean, do we? Yes, I, I do have a takeaway. And the takeaway for this is much like the takeaway that you and I talk to people about all the time when it comes to bankruptcy, right? Bankruptcy is cast as uh, you, you should not file bankruptcy. You have a moral obligation to repay your creditors, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and in fact, when you do the math and you look at the facts, oftentimes the answer is exactly opposite. This case it, it, with the woman that you, you talk to, the person you talk to, the, the logical answer for them, because they're working hard, trying to grow their business to get off, the logical answer for them is to lie. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say it, but <laughs> I was going to say my advice is best for one-on-one, not for an actual podcast that anybody can listen to. Well, I, these two no... guys are advocating fraud. What? Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't want that. No, I, I, I'm trying to advocate logic and help get people off the system. I, I certainly don't encourage people just to lie. But as this person said, they're stuck. And so there really is no other option. You remain stuck or and you give up your dreams and abilities and hard work to do more and get off the system or you lie. Yeah. And, 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 you know, with this particular client too, there was a lot of medical issues going on at the same time. So it was not just a matter of, okay, we got this money and we're trying to start this business. We'd like to get off of it. There's other medical benefits that they're get that they have to have, you know, with, with their medical situations, they, they can't afford to not get those medical bills covered. So that's, it's, it's even more than just, can we feed the kids, right? It's, are we going to be able to live? Yeah. And, and when it comes to medical bills, you know, we talk about Medicaid, how so many states like North Carolina has fought expansion of Medicaid for years and years. And uh, this year they're, they're voted to do it. So they finally realized that, you know, we need to expand medical care. Now, Medicaid fraud is another interesting topic because the the vast majority of Medicaid fraud is not from people, not from consumers, patients on Medicaid. It's from healthcare providers. So yeah. <laughs> why do we continue to penalize the disadvantaged consumer for government fraud, medical provider fraud, uh, you know, everything else? Because everybody but the consumer is getting rich off of this. So I think yeah, I just and answered my own question of why politicians don't do anything about it. Yeah. Plus, it's it's much easier to make the perception of the lazy consumer sitting on their ass to be the boogeyman. Divide and conquer, right? Yeah. The, the businesses that take advantage of this get rich. The politicians get rich in their own way. Many of them are very wealthy, but you scratch your head and wonder why, because their salaries aren't that great for the positions they hold. But yet they have a lot of money all of a sudden sometimes. So. <laughs> Not sure how that works. But, um, yeah, as you get older, you just get more and more cynical, uh, and, and more pragmatic too. So I, I, I don't encourage people to lie. I wish there was a third alternative. I am not suggesting that that people, you know, in this particular situation, this person is self-employed, making a go of it, making their business successful. And Damon, I don't know. I mean, if they had to squeak by a couple of extra months and then fess up when they were making a little bit more money, 
Well, what's the worst case scenario? They got to pay some of it back when they can afford to pay it back. Okay. Yeah. Yep. You know, well, I'm thoroughly depressed now. <laughs> well, not only are we over our 30 minutes, but I didn't say this at the beginning of the call, but I'm doing this podcast in my trailer because I'm at a baseball tournament for my son and yeah. I could not do it with the air condition on in my little office here in the trailer. And so I stopped the air 30 minutes ago when we started. I'm out here in Phoenix and the thermostat has climbed to 77. I'm not mm-hmm. like sweating, sweating yet, but I'm starting yeah. to feel it. <laughs> well, we'll end the podcast now and let you turn your air conditioning back on. This is Steve Rode, your get out of deck guy with Damon Day, D-A-M-O-N-D-A-Y.com. Damon is an exceptional debt coach and uh, has sweat rolling down his crack. And I'm out of here. <laughs>